Father, thank you for this time together this morning. If there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that you'd draw them by the power of your Spirit. That you would open the eyes and the hearts of your people that we might receive from you. It is in your name that we give you the praise and glory that you so richly deserve. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 4. We'll be here for another week or two, finishing up this series. And this morning we look at counterfeit Christianity versus real Christianity. What does real life Christianity look like? You know, we live in a world that uh, the organic craze is big now because we want real ingredients in our food. Uh, we don't want the artificial stuff, which is a, which is a good thing I'm all for. And uh, we're always looking for the pure, for the authentic, for the real, for the organic. And if we look in the Bible, if we wanted to see the organic uh, beginnings of the church, this is where we go to, is the book of Acts. And it shows us the birth, the purity of the church. No artificial ingredients, but we'll see at the end of this sermon that there is kind of an uh, inorganic uh, substance that comes about. There is an uh, artificial spirit. A counterfeit would be the proper word to use uh, that we'll see here in just a moment. But today we're all, our culture is uh, looking for what's real. We want real life. We want the real thing. And, and our culture defines real in very different ways. But uh, I read an article about one guy who said, well, let's just be plain and let's just be simple. He said, here's what I think real success is in life. And I want to go through the stages. So this is the way he lists it. He said, you know, at age four... Uh, real success is not peeing in your pants. Uh, at age 12, it's having lots of friends. If you're a 12-year-old, you just want to have lots of friends. When you're 16, it's having a driver's license. I mean, man, is there any bigger deal when, than when you're 16 having a driver's license? When you're 25, it's getting married and having sex. is what you've been looking forward to. And so that's your real success goal that you're looking for. When you're 35, it's making money. When you're 45, it's making more money. When it's, when you're 55, it's being married and still having sex. It's 70, uh, having a driver's license. At 80, having friends. My 80 year old father tells me that all the time. He goes, all my friends have died. And when you're 85, it's not peeing in your pants. All right. So success is all relative, isn't it? It's all subjective. But we see here in this passage here, we'll see uh, what real Christianity is supposed to look like. And then the Bible, as it so often does, will give us uh, the counter to it. It'll give us the pseudo-definition. Uh, the early church experienced real grace from God. We'll see that term used here in just a moment. Real grace, and it experienced and it demonstrated itself in one common purpose, in generosity and in encouragement. Let's look at our text here in Acts chapter 4, beginning with the 32nd verse. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So the church has begun. This is the infancy of the church. It's begun. We're probably about six, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks into the life of the church at this point. And the Bible says that those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Yeah, if you go back and you look at what the great commandment of Je the greatest commandment of Jesus was when asked, he said, "What? 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. You're back to the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And we see that that's the greatest commandment. And we see in one common purpose, they are loving the Lord. They are loving God Almighty. They are loving Christ Jesus with one heart and one soul. And no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but they all had everything in common. So they have one key focus, one objective in life, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified, loving him with all their heart, soul, and mind. And they saw themselves as everything that we have belongs to Christ. Now, this is not a text for communism, as some have made throughout history. Uh, because we will see that they still own the property. They had the right whether to give it or not. Uh, it wasn't taken from them, and it wasn't controlled by the government. So that's not the picture that's being given here. It's a pi- picture of generosity. It's a picture of family. You know, at my home, my wife has a car, a minivan, and I have a car, and uh, my kids don't have one. And, uh, but you know what? That car is for the family. And so if my wife needs to use it, she uses it. If somebody in my family needs to use it, if one of my neighbors need it, if somebody in the church needs to borrow it, I'll let them borrow my car because it's a family, okay? And that's the picture that's given right here. Our homes are for the family. They're for our immediate family, but sometimes our extended family. Even though some of you probably shudder when I say that. And when there is a need in the body of Christ, we are to be stewards. We are the managers of it. And the early church got that. They got the principle that, yes, God has given me instruction. He has given me uh, management opportunity over this. I am to see over it. But it is all for the family. It is all for the kingdom of God. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. The grace of God was upon them because they were all had the common purpose. They all saw it as one and whatever was needed, they recognized that they were stewards of that. And there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of the lands of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of that which was sold. It says there's not a needy one among them. Now, how do I clarify that? Are they talking about in the world? There wasn't a needy person in the whole world. Are they talking about in the community, in the state? There was a needy person. They're talking about within the body. There was not a needy person within the body. Now, that's that's a tough one, isn't it? You know, because people come to me a lot of times and they say, well, how do you know when to help people? And And at what point do you cut them off? And what do you do? And how do you handle that? And you know, and we've had, particularly early in our church, we had situations where we were helping people who really had some needs. And uh, I mean, I can think of one that we maybe did over the course of three years, maybe like $30,000 of helping them pay rent and electricity and doing some things. And and then we just realized, you know what, we've got to think long-term here. And we've got to think through the whole process of budgeting. That's one of the reasons that we do uh, Steps to Financial Peace. And we said, okay, here are the criteria. From this point forward, you're going to have to go through financial counseling. You're going to have to put your budget before. Uh, we have a little group that, w- that works, financial counselors, that will put it before that will help you get on a budget, and we will help you as needed in that capacity if you'll do that. And you know what we found out? We found out most people would not do that. They just kind of went away. <laughs> They went to another church. I, I'm not showing you my finances. I'm not doing a budget. 
Uh, some of them didn't say that. They just didn't show back up. And uh, it was really interesting. Uh, and, you know, we had gone through, we'd learned a lot of hard lessons the hard way. But we all, as a body, we are committed to helping people uh, if they will be accountable. Because you know what the Bible says, right? He said it met their needs. Now, here's the problem that we have in Flower Mound, Texas, 2014. We look at that and we go, God, I just bought a house and I can't even make the payments on What's up? God, I just bought a new car and just, I can't make the payments. God, what's wrong with you? You're not meeting my needs. And I think they would just laugh at us back then. <laughs> you know, I think they'd just have a big belly laugh. You know what percentage, this is not from the Bible, this is from uh, historical sociological studies. They estimate in Palestine at that time about 4% of the population would have been considered wealthy. 4%, okay? And that, by the way, that 4% would include all of us today, all right? Um, and about 7 to 8%, they estimate, would be some form of a middle class. Everybody else would be what we regard as poverty. So recognize nobody had electricity, nobody had air conditioning, nobody had any of those things. No one had a car, all right? Um, virtually everyone walked. They, they were subsistence living. But what is he talking about need? He said, basically, they were able to eat and have a place to sleep. Those needs were being met, and the body of Christ was making sure, even those who had come in from Pentecost, making sure that everyone was able to eat. Hey, you know one of the reasons that we do this is because the Bible tells us that God will meet our needs according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And uh, He's going to meet our physical needs. He's going to meet our spiritual needs. And one of the reasons we do this is because God's commanded us to. Uh, when we see our brother who's hungry and naked, did you clothe him? This is the one of the ways that we do it. This is the one of the things that real Christians do. We somehow have it in our mind that we'll throw more money out the window. And that's not always the right thing. God may lead you to do that. That's between you and God. We don't see that in Scripture, okay? That's not how we see it. We, we see that it was given and they would come together and there, there's an accountability factor that's given. And so that's why it's important. And I can, I can tell you, I've, I've been to Haiti. I see where this goes. This isn't going to uh, some big, rich, overweight guy, okay? This is going to people, these are going to children who don't have it. And this is going to our food banks here, uh, even locally. So this is for, for these. So I encourage you to be a part of it. And that's what they were doing. They were gathering their resources together and they were making sure that the needs were met. And they had accountability. We look here at this text and it says, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of the land that sold them, they brought and the proceeds were sold. You know, one of the reasons that you're sitting here, you've heard me say this before, is because people sacrificially gave just to get this property. When we just had a couple of hundred people not probably about 120 adults, people sold property, people sold guns, rings, cars, people signed off on their retirement. I mean, people made huge sacrifices to meet the need. And I will forever be grateful. And I, I, I've shared before, I don't even know how it happened, how we got from the land to that building, because it didn't work on paper. It does not match on paper. But people sacrificially gave and they met the need that was necessary. And it was remarkable. And it's a picture of what's happening here. And it's a picture of what should continue to happen within the church. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus, so you see the picture, by the way. They gave the apostles, who were the leaders of the church at this point. It was a council, much like we have elders today. It was set before them. 
and then they distributed it. They had the criteria. So it wasn't just directly given. It was put, in, put into the leadership, and then they distributed it as, as the need was assessed and verified. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see that the church had a common purpose. We see that the church is generous. And now we see there's a guy named Barnabas. And the Bible says that his real name is Joseph. His name's Joseph. And um, he's from Cyprus. He's not from that area. But he's obviously heard the gospel. He's been transformed. He's trusted Christ. And God puts it upon his heart uh, to sell his land and come and to, to give it. Now, I don't think necessarily that he did that in any public fashion, but as word got out, it must have been a significant amount of money because word got out and people heard about it. And, um, it, and what I love about Barnabas is that's not his real name. His name's Joseph. You know, you've heard nicknames. Maybe you're like me. You grew up with nicknames, whether it was Champ or Chump or whatever your nickname was that your parents assessed to you or people called you. And uh, a lot of times nicknames have something to say about who we are or they're a characteristic of who we are. And for Barnabas, that was certainly true. They kept seeing this guy who was encouraging. We see that he was a giver. And we see if we look over his life that he went with Paul on his journeys, that he assisted him. We see that he was there at the Jerusalem Council with Paul. We see that he welcomed the Gentiles in. We see that he was the one that stood up for John Mark when the apostle Paul said, no, I'm not taking him again. We see him believing in people. We see him giving of his resources, giving of life, giving of his faith. He's a great man. He's a great example. And it begs the question, what is the word that describes us when people think of us today? Would it be giving, generous, integrity, loving, gracious, kind, patient? Or would it be selfish? Distant, aloof, hard? What is the word that describes us today? What would we call, be called the son of? Great question to ask ourselves today as we see the church is thriving because of the common persons, because of the generosity, and because of the encouragement. But as so often happens, and we see it throughout the Bible, we'll see errors when Judgment is exercised because of people's gross hypocrisy. Matter of fact, we go all the way back to the garden and we see, first of all, Eve taking of the fruit. And she says, you know, if that, if that serpent hadn't told me. And, and we see the material, the power, the flesh taking over. We see it with Cain and Abel. Cain comes and he gives an offering. And his offering is, you know, not like maybe you heard in Sunday school. Well, he gave some fruit, but... Abel gave uh, an animal sacrifice. That's not what the, the Hebrew says. Basically, it was a qualitative issue. Cain's offering was one of no thought and of no cost. And Abel's gift was one of much cost. It was a first fruits type of offering. He gave of his best. We see that picture. And that's what's going to happen right here in the church. And what happens? Cain ends up being thrown out of the garden. His sin overtakes him. He commits murder and God banishes him. We see throughout the Old Testament when Korah raised up and said, Moses, why do you get to be in charge? Korah wanted to be in charge. He saw what was happening. He saw the glory that Moses received. What he didn't know is Moses didn't even want that job, by the 
way. But God had called him and placed him in that position. We see it with Ahab and, and, and Abihu, in, um, or Nabab and Abihu, the priest who uh, took God's uh, offerings and sacrifices in a light way, in an unholy way, as the institution of sacrifices were beginning. And we see them stricken dead. We see Herod in Acts chapter 12 a little later. When he comes out, the people go say, he's like a god. And they start giving him the credit of God. And the Bible says that God strikes him. Each time there's a new era, God is starting something new. And we see the miracles that have happened in Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we see how the events occurred, how people are coming to Christ. And now in its infancy, God is going to purify and keep it clean. Why is that? Well, one reason is, you remember when you have a baby, if you had one? Remember when you had a baby, how protective you were? Oh, oh I don't want any wind on his head. Oh, the light. I want to cover the light, you know, and, and you're holding just right, and certain people want to hold Oh, that's okay. Thank you. And I mean, you're just so delicate, and you don't want anybody that, to touch them that you think wouldn't be completely, uh, completely responsible. And you're just hovering all over them and not letting them get out. And then by the time you've had your fourth child and they're four or five, you're letting them gnaw on somebody else's keys. I mean, you're, you know what I mean? The truth of it is, but in the infancy and in the beginning, you're so protective. And that's the picture here. It's the infancy of the church. It's purifying. And, and, and there's so many movements that have occurred. There's so many false Christ and false spirits. And God is saying, this is it. And He purifies and He protects. Because now there's a man who comes on the scene who his heart is not one of common purpose. His heart is not one of generosity. His heart is not one of encouragement, but of self-centered greed. Let's look here. The Bible says in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, but, it's always bad to be on the other side of a but in Scripture, okay? But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Ananias, whose name means the Lord is gracious, and Sapphira means beautiful. So this man had experienced the favor of the Lord. He has enough that he's able to give. And he sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge, and he kept it back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, what's the picture here? <clears throat> well, Ananias and Sapphira probably been going to the meetings. They've They've come, they begin to follow Christ, and, um, but there's something in his spirit that he's not completely given to Christ, and it's certainly his possessions is a part of it, but he sees what's happening, and he sees what happens with Barnabas. He probably heard word, and he heard, oh, Barnabas, do you hear what Barnabas did? Well, there's not a needy person among them, and, and Barnabas so sacrificially gave. It's amazing what's going on at that church. It's incredible. And those people are so giving, so generous, and look at those people. And, and, and Barnabas, oh, he's such an encourager. I mean, my neighbors are coming because they met Barnabas and what's going on there. And they heard that. Maybe Sapphira said, and, you know, I'm completely speculating, honey, you know, we've got an extra piece of property. Remember that investment track that, that we bought several years back? I bet it's worth two or three times more. What do you think we ought to do? You think we ought to sell it? Really? He goes, well, that's right. You know, that. It is pretty amazing what's going on. And, uh, you know, Barnabas, boy, that's, he's getting some really publicity. You know, no, I, mean, I, you know I, I bet that'd be good for our business right now. I bet if we did something like that and everybody knew, I bet you everybody would shop at our place. 
I bet, I bet that's a, you know what? We're going to do it. But let me tell you, honey, we're going to give. But, you know, they don't need all that. I mean, those, one of those people, they can take care of themselves. Why do I got to be responsible? I'll tell you what we can do. We'll sell it. And uh, we'll give them what we paid for it. We'll just give what we paid for it. Well, sweetheart, you know it's, it's a lot more value right now. I mean, the city's beginning to grow in the area. And, you know, it's, that's a pretty good piece. You, you probably could get three times. Well, you know what? We'll just keep that. We'll just keep that. Why can't we both talk? Well, were we going to tell them? No, we're not going to say a word. So we're just going to let them think that we completely gave that product. That's right. What do they need to know? Hey, it's good for them, good for us. Everybody wins. You think that's right? Hey, you want it or not? Just helping people. It doesn't matter what we do. It's our problem. We can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. That spirit kind of soaks in. You know, we like to think that we're so good in America. We're so civilized now. We're so educated. But it's interesting, there was a book written, it's actually about 20 years old now, it's called When America Told the Truth. And they did this survey of nearly 100,000 people across the United States, across different cultures, different economic groups. And this is what they found out. What would you do for $10 million? What would you do for $10 million? The first one was this. If you had $10 million, 7% of the people would kill a stranger. They'd just kill somebody they don't know. For $10 million. 10% of them would lie to cover up a murder. If you give me $10 million, I'll lie and allow a murder to go free. 16% would give up their American citizenship and never come back. They'd give up their citizenship and never come back to the United States. 23% would become a prostitute for a week. Male and female. This is a combination and this one right here blows me away. This is indicative of our culture right here. One out of every four people surveyed said they would, they would abandon their entire family for $10 million. Now, one in four, that doesn't bode well for us. Matter of fact, if I look at these statistics, some of you would probably be willing to do it. Don't raise your hand. Um, but talk about the moral depravity. And that's of the United States. And here's the killer part. That's 20 years ago. I think it's worse if you take the survey now. The truth of it is, is we all deal with the sin of hypocrisy. With the sin of wanting to appear better than we are. Now let me specify to you what hypocrisy is not. And by the way, God had His harshest things, and certainly Jesus had the harshest things to say about those who were hypocrites. We see if you go back and read Matthew chapter 6, he just rails on the hypocrites. It starts with verse 1. If you go back and look at Matthew chapter 24, he spends almost an entire chapter talking about those who are hypocrites and just railing on them. But it's not what you might necessarily think. It's not this. It's not someone who says, um, who stands up and says, you know, you shouldn't exaggerate, and then they exaggerate. It's not someone who teaches their children, you know, let's don't be greedy, uh, but yet you waste. That's not the picture here. It's not me saying, you know what, you, you, sh you need to pray and prayer should be a priority and me not praying like I should. Okay, so that's not the picture that's given in Scripture. Okay, we still are to hold up these values to our children, to our church, and, and what we have to do is just say, I struggle. 
you know what, I, I, I should pray more. I struggle in my prayer life. I, I should be more generous, and I struggle with that too. That's not hypocrisy. That's just stating, hey, here's the principle. Here's where we want to be, and we're, all, we're struggling with that. And that's okay, and God honors that. Here's the picture when we say, you know what, you need to pray. And because you don't pray, you're disqualified, and, and you're not the Christian you should be. And I condemn you, and I belittle you, and yet I don't pray. I talk about your generosity, or I, I, I talk about people specifically who are not being generous, and then I'm not generous. I use that as a weapon, but yet I don't live by that standard. And Jesus had some very, very harsh things to say. And that's the picture of this kind of hypocrisy right here. They are giving evidence that they are giving, they're sacrificing all that they have. They're making this tremendous sacrifice when in reality it's no sacrifice at all. They simply want their name to be glorified. We don't like cheaters, do we? Let me give you a name. Anybody know who Rosie Ruiz was? Rosie Ruiz, you're a big runner. 1980, she was the one in the Boston Marathon who started the first mile, somehow slipped into the crowd, and then the last mile showed back up and won. Okay? So she really only, matter of fact, they estimate she only ran about a mile and a half for the Boston Marathon. Okay? And they were asking her after, oh, you don't seem that winded. Oh, yeah, I had a lot of energy. She, she literally said this, I had a lot of energy when I woke up this morning. <laughs> well, yeah, I can run a mile and a half. I mean, it's like, man, and then when, in the winter of the Boston Marathon, I said, I never saw her. The person in second place, and this was back before they had all the video surveillance. And um, she had somehow qualified in the New York Marathon, which they found out later. Now they suspect that she didn't finish that one either. But uh, they started investigating, and they started going to people who were at markers, and no one had seen her at any of the markers. No one had ever seen her in the lead. No one had seen her, period. And so they finally gained enough evidence, and she totally she refutes it to this day, and then got uh, arrested for uh, embezzling $60,000 from her employer. I mean, she had, like, countless uh, problems uh, later on. But... You know, when we think of that, when I think of that, and if you're a runner, and if you had trained all that time, and somebody won who cheated, doesn't that make you angry? I mean, we, we get mad when we hear the name A-Rod now, don't we? You know what I mean? You hear the word Bernie Madoff. Doesn't it just, I mean, if you had, I know a guy who invested with him. I mean, he just, he just steam comes out of his ears. Because here was a guy who was in charge of, he was chairman of the board of the NASDAQ. He was on regulation committees that were supposed to be regulating trading. And yet, he was cheating the whole time. We hate it when people cheat. And when God is cheated of His glory, God doesn't like it either. And He stands firm against it. We see that in this story. We see that in this passage. In chapter 5, verse 2, He says, And the wife had full knowledge and kept back some of the proceeds. In verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He's saying, do you recognize you are coming from the, before the body of the church? This is its infant. This is the church. This is the only church. This is the body of believers. This is the bride of Christ. And you're standing here and you're lying. You're saying that you're making this sacrifice, that you're giving the full money here. And he said, and you kept back part of the proceeds of your land. And then he says this. He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? It was your land. Nobody was making you do this. After it was sold, you could do what you wanted. You could, you could have said, all right, I'm giving half here, and I'm giving half to the church. I'm going to keep half of it, 
I'm going to keep three-fourths. He said, you could have done what you wanted. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Why have you conceived, you've premeditated this idea that you're going to say you've given it all for God's glory when really you're just trying to receive your own glory? Why are you being the ultimate hypocrite? You've not lied to man. As you come here and you stand before this church, you are lying to God. We'll see later on in this same text, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We see it in Deuteronomy 16. We see it in Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. What is he talking about? You shall not presume upon the mercies of God, thinking that he won't do anything, trying to take advantage and to take glory from him to receive for yourself and thinking nothing will happen. There are instances, as I mentioned earlier, several in Scripture where this happened. And God has swift judgment to deal with these situations. So Ananias is in that situation. He's made that plan. It is premeditated. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath. And great fear came up upon all who heard of it. I bet it did. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. In that particular culture, the Palestinian culture, particularly in the summer months, is very hot. They would bury him that day. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Did you sell it for this price? She came in and said that you sold this for $100,000 and that you're giving it all. Is that what you did? Is that what you sold it for? Here's your opportunity. She remembered what she, the agreement she'd made with her husband to lie. And she said, yes, it was $100,000. Yes, it was that amount. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed to test the Spirit? You've agreed to tempt God, to test Him. You don't believe that He'll do anything. You don't believe, you don't understand the purity of His church. You don't believe in the sanctity and the holiness of God. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear became upon the whole church and upon all of those who heard. God is making his glory known through the common purpose, through the generosity, through the encouragement, and through his judgment. And one day God will ultimately show His glory through His final judgment. But here in the infancy of the church, here in the purity of the church, the beginning, can you imagine what would have happened if He had not done that? You could just speculate because there were plenty of religions and movements going on. And they, and they hear about the, the miracles that have happened. Hey man, that God must be real. The, the lame walk, the blind see. They're helping those as need. <laughs> yeah, but my neighbor... <laughs> Let me tell you, he's going to that church too. And uh, quite frankly, he's acting like he's one of those big givers. I personally know he profited. I mean, my cousin bought that property for him. I know what it was sold for. And that rumor begins out and God, he nips it in a bun, as Barney Fife would say, right there. Till the church is strong enough to stand upon its own. And we'll see later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that some are taking the Lord's Supper lightly and they're taking it in a manner. They're getting drunk before the Lord's Supper. And he said, Paul said, hey, chapter 11, you can go back and read it. Many of them got sick. And that's why some of you died. Because you've not revered the holiness of God. What about you today? You tempt God? 
Do you revere the holiness of God? Um, Aaron Harris, one of our elders here, tells the story of when his father was a church leader and uh, there were some things that they were doing in the church to make progress and some things to uh, glorify God, to accomplish the mission. Somebody stood up in the middle of church, a lady stood up in the middle of church and started just uh, going at him and going after him. And, and uh, while she was speaking, one of the light fixtures fell down here on the head. Okay, coincidence maybe. Next week, uh, same thing happened. They're talking about their initiative, about what's happening. Man stands up, starts to be divisive, starts to speak negatively. And that week he dies. He said, you know, we really didn't have a problem after that. God just kind of sailed on through. Hey, I can tell you other stories, but I'm going to stop. I would just say it's a mistake to think that the same God is not alive today and moving and kicking. Because He dispenses much grace ought to be the surprise for us. But can I tell you, He will be glorified. And He will be the final decider on what truth is, what is right. And He will protect His anointed and His church. Sometimes churches close the doors and that's the will of God. Sometimes churches have big fights and they're destroyed. And God says, you know what? You have begun such a thing that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you dissolve. I don't know what God's meaning. I don't know why He does that. I have no idea. And But the grace of God, that could be us. But when God anoints and when He chooses and when His hand is on it and this is what He wants, there's nothing you need to stop it and He will make sure of that. That's why we sign a covenant at this church when you become a member to say, I will not be divisive. If I have a problem, I'll go to a leader. I'll go to an elder if that doesn't work. I'll go to the, the body of leaders, but I will handle it in a biblical manner. That's not what happened in certain instances in Scripture and we see what happens same God is still alive today and He still, though He dispenses much grace, requires, requires our holiness. So the question becomes, if I ask the question, what man are you most representing? Are you a Barnabas kind of guy? When people think of you, they think of life. Thinking of someone who believes in people. They think of someone who has a true faith, who's generous, who's giving, who's encouraging. Are you an Ananias kind of person? I protect. I'm cold. I'm distant. <clears throat> I decide I'm in control. I don't give because I don't know what you're going to do with it. Now I'll, I'll decide. I'll decide where my money goes. I'll decide where I tie. I'll decide what I do. I'll decide what's right. I'll decide what's wrong. I'll decide when. And you think, you know what? Let me think how this profits me first. If that's your first thought, then you need to think again. Do you know Christ? As we talked about in 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 5, those who know Christ, who love Christ, will honor Him. And those who don't, they, they don't know Him or God will take them. Just like you see God taking people here. I think that still happens today. Again, is there a greater dispensing of grace? Absolutely. But the same God and the same Spirit is alive today. Where are you? Let's pray. God, I pray today that we would be real Christians, that our church would be full of the real Spirit of Christ, 
that we would have a common purpose to love God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. Lord, that we'd be generous with our resources, with our time, with all the things that you've given us to steward, that we would use it for the family of God. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouragers to encourage people to know Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the risen and safe Lord. God, I pray this morning for those, Father, who've become hardened, who are doing life on their own, who are thinking, what can I glean or gain on my own? I pray, God, that you remove that spirit. Lord, that you would break us. You would give us a heart that longs to give, that longs to share, that longs to encourage, that longs to shine forth the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us be a part of the community. Lord, one of the reasons we have small groups is so that others might see. Lord, as we have feed the hunger, let us be faithful to give of our time and our resources. Lord, as we're part of this church, let us give of our resources so that your name might be proclaimed, so that others might go out and proclaim your name. They might be supported. Lord, that we might educate our children, that we might transform the minds of our youth in a culture that one in four people say, I'd abandon my whole family for $10 million. Let us be people who want to know your word and who are willing to be discipled and to follow. Let us be a part of this community and be accountable in small groups and prayer groups to one another. Lord, let us pray. Let us seek your heart. Let us be real. And for your glory, we ask these things.